0: We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay.
1: Today's guest is Mark Matthews. Mark is a big wave surfer and a motivational speaker. Mark has made a living achieving the near impossible, crossing the intersection of danger and excitement. He knows all too well the crippling grasp of fear. While in Tasmania, 15 feet in front of a cliff in cold, shark-infested waters, Mark hit a reef and instantly blacked out. Terror engulfed every inch of his being. Neck braced and hospital ridden, he didn't know if he could ever surf again. And at that moment, Mark made a decision never to allow fear to overpower him again. He has deconstructed and fine-tuned and personalised emotion and resilience techniques to successfully strengthen one's mindset and sustain long-term performance. These techniques have helped him win an unprecedented three consecutive Oakley Big Wave Awards and Cementum is one of the best Big Wave surfers in the world. In this interview, we discuss his story, Big Wave surfing, fear and how to overcome it, how to prepare and train, how to become mentally stronger after failure, and how to ride the big waves in your own life. And now, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much, Mark, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Now, I've also had another Mark Matthews on the podcast. And uh, i would say your your job is quite different to his. So if you could just give everybody listening um, a quick overview on who you are. Because going from somebody who didn't like the water to, you know, to riding like big waves. And now motivational speaking, bit of a career change, yeah. You know? So could you give a quick overview of who you are and why you're like a legend in the sport?
2: Yeah, so I've been surfing big waves professionally for almost 20 years now. And um, whenever I show footage or photos to audiences, they usually think that for me to be able to do what I'm doing in the ocean, I'm, I'm most likely either crazy, have some kind of death wish, or maybe I have uh, I was born with some kind of brain defect that, that just stops me <laughs> feeling fear altogether. But uh, <clears throat> that couldn't be further from the truth, man. I feel fear just like everyone else. And when I was really young, I really wanted to be a professional surfer, but I wasn't quite good enough to be able to, to be at championship level to surf on the competitive world tour. And so the, the sort of other avenue to still have a career in in professional surfing was to go down the big wave avenue but i was terrified of the ocean when i grew up and, and terrified of big waves so but i just wanted to be a, a professional surfer more than i was scared of the ocean so it's just been a, a journey to push myself to become comfortable and and good at surfing big waves and i think that's why i became so fascinated with the psychology of fear and how to manage it and how to deal with stress and anxiety because for me that was the part that I could outcompete everyone else if I was able to learn how to manage that fear and anxiety then I could probably out-compete the more talented surfers out there and um, eventually that transition probably seven years ago into public speaking because people wanted to know the insights that I had been using in in big wave surfing of how to manage stress and anxiety and um and i i was also terrified of public speaking so it was kind of it was the perfect test for me to take what i'd learned in professional big wave surfing and try and apply it to public speaking and see if and see if the the techniques held up and uh thankfully they did so now i kind of manage between big wave surfing and and public speaking which is uh it's a whole lot of stress and, and anxiety, but it's also really
1: fun. Um, which would you consider the scariest at the moment? I would definitely say the public speaking. if it's me. Yeah, definitely public speaking.
2: Definitely, public speaking was a lot more stressful for me to um, to learn how to do and become somewhat comfortable on stage. I'm I'm still definitely not completely comfortable on stage, but I don't. I think that's a good thing. I don't think you would want to be. And it's a similar in in big wave surfing. Any time I've become too complacent or too confident in big wave surfing, I, I wipe out bad and get injuries. And I think that's similar to public speaking. If any time I, I start to feel too confident, I have to check myself because otherwise I'll, I'll stuff up on stage.
1: So what was it about the water that kind of scared you initially, you know, but, and how did you get overcome that? Like, was there a kind of, a, just a greater want rather than a fear or, you know, like, what was it about the water that kind of gave you the initial fear and how did you overcome that? Well,
2: my family surfed, so my dad was a surfer when he was young. He, he then went on to be a, a surgeon, so sort of stopped surfing. But when I was old enough, he started surfing again and kind of started to teach me because I, was always, I was, always loved the water. But I had a couple of moments when I was really young I've just went waves, and this happens to a lot of kids, just when waves hold you down for that little bit too long and, and you panic underwater. And it's absolutely such a terrifying feeling. And um, mm-hmm. that, I think that just kind of scarred me a little bit at that age. And um, that's why I, I always had that in my early childhood with, with surfing and slowly surfing bigger and bigger waves. It was still in the background, that feeling. Um, and, but then, yeah, I just, I pushed myself so hard in to surf big waves because at the start it was about making a career out of it. I could make this amazing living out of surfing big waves and not have to work. And then, um, but then as I pushed myself to do it, I fell in love with doing it. It's like, there's no, for me, there's no feeling like it. it is the most amazing adrenaline rush you can get and uh and the whole like lifestyle around it is is phenomenal i get to travel around to really remote places all over the earth with a handful of friends and my team of filmmakers photographers and water safety crew and we just get to have these awesome experiences in these in together in these um amazing environments so it's on one hand i just completely fell in love with it And then at the same time, it was my career. So my livelihood depended on it. So those two things together just created enough motivation
1: for me to push through the fear that I had. So, I mean, like a lot of people who have surfed, you know, they've gone out, caught a few waves, you know, that kind of thing. how do you even start preparing for a like a wave of the size that you've ridden? You know, Do you have like a kind of ritual that you go through, like a pre-wave, a pre-surf ritual that gets you into the zone? Or do you go out and catch some waves and, you know, just look at the forecast and then pick up when the opportune waves are going to come in? How would you go about, you know, one of your like big wave rides? Is there a way of planning it or is it just a case of checking when the swells are coming and just going out and trying to get on the biggest wave possible? It's a combination of
2: all. I mean, the the major part of the preparation starts early. Like you have to condition yourself to be ready for a huge wave that's going to try and drown you and hold you underwater for a long time. And the the way we do that conditioning is I'll get a, a, a free diver, so someone who can hold their breath a whole lot longer than me. And I'll take a professional freediver and we'll go to a deep pool. So one of the swimming pools below the, the like Olympic diving boards, so they're usually about five meters deep. And then for the training that we do and the conditioning, it's all about myself and the freediver. We dive into the pool at the same time, swim down to the bottom. And then it's my job to get to the surface to breathe. And it's his job to hold me underwater until I pass out. So we have to wrestle at the bottom of the five-meter pool, and I'm trying to wrestle him off me to be able to breathe. And, and that's the way that we simulate what a wave could do to you. And, and you're just constantly conditioning your brain and your body to understand the capacity that it has underwater and, and to not panic. So you have to have this controlled ability to, to basically wrestle underwater and, and at the same time, trying not to expend too much energy and stay calm as your body slowly starts to feel the pain of running out of oxygen and carbon dioxide build up in your lung. And, and you got to say, so you got to calm yourself at the same time with controlled exertion to get yourself to the surface. And I tell you, it is the most uncomfortable training I've ever done. And no part of me ever in, <laughs> wakes up in the morning on a training day wanting to go and do that training. But I know when, when I've done that, once I condition myself like that, then it just takes away so much of the anxiety of when I'm going to surf big waves because the the training is way harder than what a big wave will do to me in the ocean. Every time I wipe out in the big surf, it's like, I'm surprised how quickly I get up compared to what we're doing in training. And I think that's the the main preparation part for big waves. That's the main conditioning that you need to do. And then it's about um, what we do is I'll I'll check the forecast every day. Like, so this morning I can go on the forecast, I can see a map around the world of where all the big swells are. And um, if, if the conditions look right, I'll get a forecast that in, say, Five to seven days' time, there'll be a huge swell hitting the coastline. of It could be anywhere in the world. It could be up in in Ireland, or it could be down at the bottom of South Africa, or the bottom of Australia, or, or uh, up up the Pacific somewhere. And then you know, in five to seven days' time, that you're going to be surfing huge waves somewhere. And then it's organising the team of filmers, photographers, water safety crew, <clears throat> getting everyone ready to to land the day before the swell at whatever location. And then you're out there that next morning trying to surf the peak of the swell when the weather conditions are good. And from the time you get the forecast, which is a week before you surf, that's when the the nerves really start to kick in. I I, um, I, I notice for me, I see that forecast and it's like someone then switches a, a TV on that plays in the back of my head. And, and the TV is just playing this constant stream of all the different ways that i'm gonna wipe out in a week's time when i surf and it's just like all these different wipeouts and things that might go wrong and it's constantly playing in my head in that week lead up to surfing <clears throat> and that that to me is the the major part of managing the stress that goes along like that mental stress of forecasting bad scenarios but i i, I found that the best way for me to approach what's going on in my head, that negative thinking, is to be like, okay, I'm, I'm thinking that all the things that might go wrong. And I could look at it as though that's my brain saying, you shouldn't go and do this. Or I could look at it as though, okay, this is my brain just trying to get me to prepare for all the possibilities that might go wrong. So then, it's just meticulous preparation of getting everything sorted and ready, so that I can take all the little bits of, of danger out of what I'm about to do. And whenever I do enough preparation, then it's like the the volume on that TV turns down, and it doesn't stress me out as much. Which I think is a huge part of preparation, also, because then you turn up on the day to surf, and you're not you you're, you're physically ready because if that that constant mental chatter about how things could go wrong if you if you focus on that too much you have that emotional response like that stress and anxiety and if you have that for a whole week before you surf when i do that then i'll turn up on the day to surf and my body will feel like i've already suffered a thousand wipeouts before i've even put a foot in the water like i'll be absolutely exhausted just because my body's playing out all the wipeouts and all the things going wrong for an entire week. And I found whenever I don't manage that that preparation, that's when I start to get really run down. Like I'll be able to push through it on the day of the swell, but then if there's another swell a week later or two weeks later and I'm hitting multiple swells, then eventually I'll get completely burnt out. So that's a big part of sort of managing that that stress and anxiety as well.
1: Because that's the thing, Inter is like – I love the way you've set that up is you you know you do your prep work, you check for the conditions you know what's coming, but then you also control you know the controllable sections of it so you know that if you do go under that you can be able to hold your breath and get up. And I've seen the videos of you doing that training, and it's terrifying just watching. I can't imagine what it's like when you're actually down there. And then it's okay, you know, you're, you're going in through and you're doing problem solving, you're risk assessing the situation, and you're getting everything ready so that you're just doing what you're naturally gifted at. You know, you're you're taking the color and the emotion out of that mental chatter, which can get us to self sabotage before we even get into the war. And coming from somebody who does that a lot, I can really appreciate how that can cut, you know, cut into you before you get to that point. So, how do you actually then enter the wave? I mean, are you looking for particular types of waves? I mean, for people who don't know you know, the, 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 like the warning signs or the, the types of waves. Are there patterns you look for? You know, because if you think about it, you do a really good risk assessment of knowing which waves to avoid, which ones to come on to. It must really work on your decision-making. Is this just trial and error, or do you kind of have a sense that there's something right or wrong with a wave or it's going to break in a certain way? How do you kind of play your decision-making?
2: Yeah it's, it's definitely a lifetime of experience of from a 10 year old kid surfing every single day up until the time you're surfing those big waves usually around like in your early 20s and it's a lifetime of looking at how waves break and what they do when they're coming at a certain angle towards the shore and then you're understanding based on how shallow it is where the wave breaks how much power the wave has so it's it's sort of subconsciously built into you like this ability to read what waves do it's definitely not foolproof like you make mistakes all the time but that's why you do the the training because i I think i've had one session surfing beat waves in my entire life where i didn't wipe out so wipeouts are just a part of the game but it is i mean it's it's water so like it's it's not like you're Sometimes you hit a reef, but it's not that's not a standard thing. So the majority of wipeouts you can deal with fine as long as you're well prepared. And then on most of the waves that we, we go to surf, the big waves, especially here in Australia, you access them by boat. So you come in on a, on a boat and the boat pulls up in the channel in the deep water alongside the wave, and then you can sit and watch how the wave's breaking, which waves look like they'll be the best ones for you to ride, and you assess the situation. And then it's about jumping out of the boat and paddling into what we call the impact zone. So the impact zone is where the waves are breaking. So you have to put yourself into the perfect spot where the waves are breaking um, in the perfect position where the waves aren't going to continuously break on top of you, but you're in the position to be able to catch the waves. So that's a fine line because you have to be far enough positioned in to catch the waves, but then If a wave comes through that's a fair bit bigger than anything else that has come through before, you might be in the position where that one breaks on top of your head. So it's this constant, like, back and forth of positioning to to get yourself onto the wave. Um, And then the the other version of what I do in big wave surfing is where it gets too big for you to paddle yourself into the waves, then you have to use a jet ski, and the jet ski will – tow you in so you hold on a rope tied to the jet ski and the jet ski will you use the speed of the ski to tow you into the big waves and then that's one then you have a partner right so they're assessing the waves and you're assessing the waves and you're both trying to figure out which one's going to be good and then the jet ski will position you into the wave in hopefully the right spot and then it's up to you where sort of how critically you want to ride that wave a a meter a meter difference in the line that you take on a wave or a meter difference in your positioning can be the make or break of whether you wipe out and and an amazing ride in surfing is when the surfer is as close to as possible to that point of wipe out but then still makes it out alive so it's like it's that 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 right on the the border of complete chaos and wipeout if you can position yourself finally there then that's that's also the best internal feeling of when you ride a wave but then it's also considered by people who sort of judge surfing as the best wave ridden
1: and so what sort of like sizes are you talking because i mean i've seen people riding just like amazingly scary looking waves i mean like how much of this are you aware of are you just focusing solely on just staying on the board keeping your balance the you know the path that you want to take what like for somebody who see the videos we can only gauge how terrifying that is but what are you aware of you know is there noise is there sights and sounds are you just solely focused on your route that you're taking
2: Yeah, so we surf any waves anywhere up to 70, 80 feet high, like huge waves. And then how dangerous those waves are depends on the way that they break. So you can get a 20 to 30-foot wave that is as powerful and dangerous as a 60-foot wave if it's coming out of deep water and breaking onto a shallow reef. That's what magnifies the power of the wave. And then when you're riding the wave, you're so focused on what's going on in front of you and the path that you have to take that often, especially if you're towed in by the jet ski, often you don't realize actually how big the wave is behind you because you don't see a lot of it. A lot of it is, is happening behind you. And, then, and it's then like you can feel the speed highlights how big it is and you can catch in the corner of the vision how big the wave is. And, and you can feel the and hear the sort of roar of the wave. But uh, it's often the case that after the session, you go in and look at the photos and the video footage of the waves you're riding, and they look way bigger than what you think because you haven't really turned around to look at how big that wave is behind you. So, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a such a hyper-focus on where you're going
1: on the wave. Jesus, just the thought of like turning around and seeing a 60 80 foot wave behind you must be just like, oh fuck. The, the moment
2: the moment when it, it is highlighted is when you do wipe out. And then you realize how big it is because you'll wipe out on the wave you're riding. And then when you come up after that wipe out to get your first breath of air, there's usually a wave right behind it that's about to break on top of you, and that gives you your first look at real because you're way down in the water, looking straight up at a mountain of water about to break on top of you. That's kind of when it all the realization hits of how big it is.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, surely the I mean, because I'm really interested in your work on sort of breaking down fear and you know, sort of learning how to control emotion and things like that. But is fear in this situation not a good thing to have to sort of say to you, you know, maybe this isn't good or? Is this is fear more a set of instructions that our mind sends us just to say we should be wary of this? You know, it's not, you know, it's not something to actually act on. Do you think like people who it's because you've been in the situation that's allowed you to do this? Or could anybody in any situation give themselves enough exposure and reference points so they could overcome any kind of scary situation?
2: I don't think that's the case. Firstly, with fear, I think a certain amount of fear is beneficial in, in almost everything that you do. Like, it's, I think it's completely unavoidable as a human being to not have certain levels of anxiety. I think they're completely natural. Um, I don't think it's the case that you can just go into a completely unfamiliar environment no matter how much... Uh, knowledge you have of that environment and not be scared like you have to have the slow built-up experience of similar environments where Mm -hmm. you build your skill set like the skill set like the knowledge is one thing but it's the actual skill set and being able to implement the skill set under pressure is what allows you to manage the amount of fear that you have to keep it at that perfect point like if it's that inverted you sort of hormetic curve principle where there's the, the sort of perfect dose required and then i think fear and stress is exactly that it's just there's a perfect amount where it heightens your skill and awareness but if you tip over the edge then it brings you into that free state and then you don't access your full potential in the moment and, and where, where your point on that curve is and your capacity to deal with a scary environment is, is just experience and the built up skills in that environment. I, I, I really think that when you see people, like what courage looks like in people when people, you see them from a distance doing something that you're like, oh man, that person's so courageous. It, more often than not, they just have a skill set in that world that they're in. And that skill set's not necessarily transferable to other environments because I've come across, I've been a Red Bull athlete for years, so I've been around the craziest performers across all different action sports. And I see people doing things that just blows my mind. But then you take them, you can take them out of that environment and put them in a completely unfamiliar environment, like even just a social environment. And they'll be nervous and anxious. So it's not necessarily that it's, you're just completely courageous in everything. I think it's more, the skill set's more important than the experience.
1: I love that because you see that the whole time people think, oh, because I could do A means I can automatically do B. And you're like, no. If it, if it was like that, everybody would be able to do anything and everything in their life. So how do we... I do. I do there is
2: one caveat to that. I do think though when when you express like the ability to do deal with a environment that was scary to you originally so it's like you conquered a fear in one area of your life i think that does give you the capacity to then take on another fear but you i just you won't be successful without the skills but you will like you you have had the experience of feeling what fear feels like and and proving to yourself that you can face fear and uh, overcome it so i think that's where it's transferable because you've just highlighted to yourself okay i felt this before i'm scared but i just need to develop the skills and i can deal with this and and you also i think your 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 body in in a certain way becomes eventually like addicted to the moments because it's like you 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 then start to seek out things that will push you to that that threshold of fear because you know on the other side of it is, is that elation and feeling of excitement. And then all of a sudden it's like, so you try and find that in all areas of your life. And I think that's that's the beneficial part. That's the transferable part. But without the skills,
1: it's not possible to actually perform well in the environment. It's a very good answer. For, for people who are listening who you know, sort of fear is holding them back or is keeping them in the comfort zone or it's not letting them go for that thing they want. How do they identify the big waves in their life that they really need to sort of go for and try to ride through? Have you got a kind of way of looking at challenging and overcoming fear? You know, how can somebody listening identify the the fear that's holding them back in their own life?
2: Yeah, it's hard to... And so unless I know sp- really specifically like what a person's like, what they want to achieve. But I think like I, I, on a broad spectrum to answer that question for, for lots of people, because I mean, we're so different in so many ways. Our situations are so different. So you need sort of detailed answers, but you can like in a broad spectrum, I think the best way is first it's like, it's like kind of reverse engineering. What a, what a clinical psychologist would do to a patient. So they would ask, uh, when you go to see them it's like what's what's your story and and where are you now and where do you want to go so you can so you can do that without like it's good if you go to a psychologist if you can afford to and stuff but if not you can just do that to yourself like ask yourself what what's my story and like who am i and where am i at and so that's getting to know yourself like self reflection you can do that on a whole different array of ways like you can do Personality test profiling to understand a bit about your, your psyche. You can do it with IQ tests to see where you sit in regards to the population and what's possible on an IQ level. Um, you can just test it all out and really get to know yourself, and then you un- have an understanding of of who you are and what your abilities are, and then you can set exactly based on some of that information where do you want to go. And I think that's the most important part. And then you get really clear about where you want to go and what it's going to take to get there. And then you're just meticulous about setting the, the, the sort of progression goals that that go from year to year, month to month, day to day. Like so they're right down to the micro actions that you need to do every day to get yourself to that point. And then you just... Just enjoy the process of achieving the little micro actions that keep you on the direction, you know. And it's just one step at a time. And as you build the skill set, you'll 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 just transition. And then it happens to everyone. It's like everyone goes from having this imposter syndrome at whatever they do. And I, I see this a lot in the corporate world, or or in business, or with entrepreneurs. And you have this moment of where you feel like an imposter, like you're not good at this and everyone else is better than than you at it. And then all of a sudden it's like, hold on a minute. I'm actually a professional in this field. I'm actually really good at this. And people are coming to you for advice at what you're doing. And it's just like a switch. It happens because you're just focused on the small goals of progression and you don't even realize then all of a sudden you're there. I think that's... um, I think that's like to be general. That's probably the the better advice. Like really get to know yourself and where you want to go, and then be meticulous in in the sort of goal setting and strategy of how to get there, and just leave no stone
1: unturned. I think is the is the good way. I love it because I remember you saying that you'd read like everything, every pamphlet, every book on sort of fear that you could get your hands on. So you kind of wanted to get to know your enemy but what kind of do you have for on the day? You know, like say that times you are feeling a bit nervous or you do wipe out. Do you have like a kind of recovery toolbox like that you kind of sit there and have a certain mantra or a certain action that you do if you don't write it as well as you thought you had hoped or you know like do you analyze at the end of the day and try to look on technique videos and things like that how do you kind of like keep improving and getting better and better and kind of expanding your your abilities you know is there ways people could take and adapt to use for their own lives
2: yeah definitely I, I mean for me the the transferable ones on the day like so any technique like that I say that go- that I use on the day is valuable but it won't make up for having a lack of preparation before the day so that's why I try and explain to people because like people want to know what do you do in the midst of, of fear but it's like if you didn't do the work beforehand, you don't have the skills to deal with the scary environment that you're in, no technique under the sun is going to really make up for that. But if you have that skill set and then you're in that environment where you're pushing your sort of capabilities to their limit and you can feel like that that really powerful anxious nerve, there's like some simple little hacks. Um, one of the good ones i got from anthony robbins is he he's so much so much of his premise is about this and it's actually now been studied at harvard and it shows that it does work fairly well which is he calls it a power pose so it's just changing your actual posture physical posture to sort of rewire your physiology so if you stand straight with your chest out shoulders back your hands can be on your hips but it's like up straight shoulders back to, to it's like a confident p- physical pose and when you, your body's in that confident physical pose it changes your physiology so they tested it where doing that then made your testosterone go up about 20, 22 or 23% and and your cortisol level so your stress hormone went that went down around 20% as well just by changing your physical posture so there's like that little hack that you can have um, I think you can add to that by by focusing on po- like positive affirmations. Like, and, and a lot of people think this stuff's kind kind of stupid because it feels weird to to say positive affirmations, you know, because it's so unnatural. I mean, we're kind of built as humans to be overly negative and critical of ourselves because that's a sort of, that sort of survival mechanism because we're such vulnerable creatures. And you want to be negative to find out all the things that you need to be better at, you know. But so if you attach sort of that positive affirmation to the the postural enhancement, so you're up, straight, powerful, and then you're telling yourself, like, I'm capable of this, I'm really good at this, I can put you know, like I can pull this off, this is what I'm gonna do. And it's just because we're so acutely wired linguistically, just saying the words, no matter what they are, will still have an effect on your brain so those two things i think are are really powerful just in those moments I, i find if i'm on the edge of panic like so if i haven't done the one two techniques that i just explained and i've drifted to that real edge of panic and i usually before i walk up on stage this is what happens and and my mind goes blank with what i'm about to talk about and it, I know it's in there, but it, it's, at that moment, it's blank. And it's like the panic is taken over, and then my mind's gone blank. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even know what to talk about In that moment, I, I deep breathing for me is probably the best, even where I hold my breath for a period, just to like sort of lessen the oxygen going to my brain, to, and it forces it to, to quieten down. And then just deep diaphragmatic breathing. So when you – diaphragmatic breathing is when you inhale – your stomach goes outwards and when you exhale your stomach goes in it's a sort of uh, like a breathing technique that can relax your body as well so there are a few different ones that i use on the day
1: because i've definitely used the breathing one you know it's it's a really helpful thing when i feel the stress coming in i feel the anxiety i kind of it's a good way for me to come like refocused and centered you know kind of like Because of my brain, like I've got OCD, so I tend to go off in nine thousand miles overthink, overanalyze, and I sometimes need to kind of just, no, no, you've got this, you know how to do it. You're just overthinking it. You know, just come back and yeah, sort of reset yourself. But do you get to a point though where you enjoy the sense of fear so too much that you kind of kind of push yourself more and more that life becomes you know, sort of less careful because without having to ride the waves and that you can actually put yourself almost in danger of chasing bigger and bigger waves to get that feeling back. How do we make sure our decision-making is safe enough that we're not, not we're you know, we're still pushing ourselves and still evolving as humans, but we're also not making silly decisions for sponsorship or for, um, you know, just to press somebody or to kind of, find that missing thing you know how do we know when's the right sort of venture to go on and when to kind of we'll back off this you know because you could get hurt
2: yeah you're spot on and I've, i've fallen victim to that that sort of um mindset a couple of times throughout my career where you you just you do become so addicted to that 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 adrenaline and that feeling and you just push too, way too hard you know that and i've had that happen and usually in in surfing it, it just results in a wipeout and an injury that forces you to to pull back and and rest and and i think in a way that's kind of good in surfing because when people like entrepreneurs or successful business people when they push too hard um they can maintain this crazy high stress level for way too long and then their their version of a wipeout ends up being some sort of illness and disease that comes down the track that's harder to recover from than just a, a wipeout or an injury in surfing and i can see that in corporate so it's like you they become addicted to that crazy heightened level of stress and overworking all day that the, the danger is that, that and you can't see it creeping up that eventually it hits them like a ton of bricks like there's some sort of illness or disease they get hit with so it's i think to manage that i think it's just constantly reassessing you know what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it like and then if it's clear in your mind of of what you want to achieve and and then why you are doing it especially that like for me with surfing, it was like surfing's my career and my income and livelihood depended on it. But I also loved the feeling of doing it, and I had to always balance those two things because if it got to the point where I wasn't loving it, but I was still pushing hard because it was my career and I'm chasing sponsorships, and and you need exposure and photos and, and footage to to get the sponsorships. If that became the main reason of doing it that usually led to something bad. So it's just constantly reassessing and asking yourself the questions. And uh, like nowadays, um, I I look at big swells and um, I ask myself, would I go and surf this swell if there were no cameras and it had nothing to do with the business or career aspect of surfing? And if I say to myself I wouldn't, then I don't go and surf it. I just if I would go and surf it without the cameras and stuff there then I know that intrinsically that motivation's there and I'm excited to do it and that's a better place to address it
1: from. That's a great way to look at it you know it's because I find a lot of men especially kind of push themselves to do things to kind of impress other people you know we don't do it for our own I mean obviously in some jobs you have to do it if that's part of your, your tasks but we tend to kind of I don't know it's like we don't have a purpose or we don't know our why so we kind of do things just to impress other people and it's it's kind of really sad but something I really was kind of surprised it's interesting was- I
2: yeah I'm sorry oh, it's I actually so interesting that aspect yeah I find that aspect really interesting because I I like it's it's like it's it's unavoidable to do things without that motivation of impressing people because that's just built into you like it's not it's part of our psyche and how we function in in societies is to want to get ourselves slowly up different different sort of uh, hierarchies within the society. So wanting like respect, admiration, and all those things from people is so built into us that, I, and I think it's unavoidable. I think it's just a part of life. But as long as you, it's like you you got to manage it and be doing it for the right reasons and that that the, those reasons are going to move to that sort of important goal in your life that are creating better things. Because I think if you're chasing the admiration for a, a not-so-important reason to you, then it becomes really detrimental. But if you're kind of chasing that admiration and, and it's for really intrinsic. Valued reasons to you, then it's super powerful to be able to access that motivation. I think, and then it's the balance between it's like you, you want the external ad- admiration and external rewards, and you can intrinsically sit in what you're doing and enjoy it while you're doing it. I think those two combinations are. I think that because I always I played with that for a long time because I knew so much of my motivation came from that because i wanted respect and and admiration from peers the general public everyone for the way that i served and for what i was doing in the ocean and it, and it's always super heightened for young people from like 15 to 25 it's unbelievably heightened in that that those moments that's why you kind of do crazier things at those points in time and take risks but it's just it's it's exactly like the 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 perfect dose, you know, like that inverted you. You've got to find that perfect dose of utilizing that motivation because, like, it's too much of it, then it can lead to bad things. But not enough of it, you might not push yourself hard enough. So it's, does that make sense? I kind can't.
1: Of? No, definitely. I mean, because it was almost really surprising when I looked, like I looked at a lot of your sort of interviews and read a lot of your book. Sure. Uh, different materials and content. And something that really surprised me was you talked about, you know, like you didn't think you had natural talent, that you had a negative outlook that, you know, it was like there was a lot of kind of negative stuff. There was a lot of kind of... you didn't have a much of a high opinion of yourself and some of of what you were saying, but then you kinda of think what you're actually doing and this, you're riding on like nature's kind of FU to mankind, you know, like these amazingly high waves with such power and you're just kind of taking it for a spin kind of thing. But When you did have that big wipeout and you had the injury and you were told, you know, that there might be a chance that you never could surf again and, you know, that you almost lost your leg, you just turned around and went, yeah, you know, and you kind of bounced back. Could you go into a little bit about that? Like, where did that sort of strength of character come from? You know, that moment when true fear is kicking in and it's the kind of you're about to lose the thing that made you happiest and passionate about and you just seemed to kind of like, no, I'm definitely going to do it. And you were looking and pushing yourself. Like, what did you do during this phase to kind of keep that strength of character up and then get back into the water so quickly?
2: Yeah, so I had a big wave smash me into a reef that dislocated my knee. And, and the, when my knee dislocated, tore through the major artery in my leg and the major nerves, which left me, I, I was lucky to even for the surgeons to save my leg but it left me with permanent nerve damage. So I can't use my foot anymore. It's called drop foot. So it just dangles down. Um, and so at that point when I had that injury, it was 2016, the end of 2016, I was told that I'll never surf again. And that, um, so my career was basically over and I was just at the pinnacle of my career where I was getting the kind of sponsorships that could set me up in a good spot, you know, for, for after surfing. Um, Man, it was shattering like i'd love to say that i dealt with it perfectly but it was absolutely shattering something that happened to me that that i think made a huge difference was when i was in hospital i um i had a young guy reach out to me and he just messaged me on social media on instagram and and he had read that i had injured myself and that i was in this one specific hospital in australia and he said um can, like, I've been following your career ever since I was young. Can I come and, and meet you? Would that be okay? I'm actually in the same hospital. And at that point in time, I was just in a dark hole. Didn't want to see anyone. I hadn't even seen my close family and friends. It was probably three weeks after the injury, and I was just stuck in hospital in bed with this big steel frame just bolted into my bones. I couldn't move anything. And um, it was only my, my wife who was with me saw the message and and wrote back to the kid. was like, yeah, no worries. Love to meet you. Why don't you come up and we'll hang out this afternoon. I'm in this hospital bedroom. And then a few hours later, this young kid, he's 19, Jason, his name was, gets wheeled into my hospital bedroom by his brother. He's complete quadriplegic. He had broken his neck, I think it was four or five months before I'd injured myself. And then he got wheeled up to my bedside table and just a big grin on his face and best as he could just put his hand out to shake my hand. And I swear in that moment, it was just like it forced a complete shift in, in my perspective of what I was dealing with. Like I, I just realized instantly in that moment there's no other way I could look at it was that I'm just – I felt so unbelievably lucky to be in the position I was, because if I had to hit the reef when I wiped out any other way, I could be dealing with what this kid was dealing with. And it was like, he was this kid, he was just, he was dealing with it so good too. And I just like, I felt almost embarrassed for being so negative about what I was going through. And it was just like, it just a shift in me where I was like, okay, it could be so much worse so just, like, deal with what you're dealing with and give give yourself the sort of best shot of recovering. And even if you don't recover, it doesn't matter because, you know, I'm so lucky to be in the position that I have where I've still got my legs. I'm still walking. Like, it can be that much worse. And I think that moment, it was such a powerful shift, like, and I was just overcome with gratitude and sort of all of a sudden feeling lucky about the injury. injury like the the response that my body had physically was was crazy because I had all these huge wounds from the surgery that were getting infected, and the doctors were starting to get worried that they would have to amputate my leg because of the the infections, and all of that healed over the next couple of weeks and that would the only difference was that I'd met that kid and and my mindset about what I was dealing with was totally different. like a complete one eighty I went from being like just angry at the situation i was in full of like sort of self-pity for what i was i was dealing with what had happened to me i was like blaming other people for what i'd what had happened to me and and then all of a sudden i was just i felt unbelievably lucky to be lying there in hospital even though i was in really bad pain and and i couldn't surf and my career was almost over i still felt unbelievably lucky and that just made all the difference and so going into uh like over the next sort of 18 months of rehab i just tried to find ways to feel that feeling as much as i could like i'd love to say i've just been on a cloud of bliss ever since but you naturally i went down into sort of dark holes and got depressed again and it was tough but i could always just like force myself to think about you know what's jason going through right now where in the world is he and what do you think he's going through and it's like, fuck, man, what I'm dealing with is easy compared to that. So just like shift that that mindset and it made such a difference. And then just I think that was the biggest fact. I still did all the physical work that I needed to do. I had eight, nine different surgeries and then eventually got to the point where I could surf um, like at about 20% of the capacity that I could before. But it's just slowly over the last three that's been almost three or over three years now since that injury. And I'm like just now getting back to about 70% capacity, which for me is enough. Like I've gone out and surfed some bigger waves again. And it's like, I've learned how to surf with, with the disability that I have with my foot not working. And, um, and now I'm back surfing big waves. But I think that that was the main thing. It's like the way your body functions, when you feel that gratitude, gives you the most amount of energy and the best chance possible to deal with whatever you're dealing with but it's impossible to just be told to be grateful i think like you can't just go up to someone and go oh man you know your situation's not that bad it could be way worse you should feel grateful it's like if someone says that to you it just doesn't work you're like the reaction is naturally you don't know what i'm dealing with you know like you don't want to hear that but for me it was just like forced it was so powerful and forced upon me because when i had that meeting that it just made all the difference and i think if you can yourself access that gratitude and and you know find examples you, yourself of how much worse it can be then you'll just naturally feel that feeling
0: it's time for a quick break there are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to com slash affiliates and level up.
1: The mind's an amazing thing, and I mean, because that's what when I was reading your story and when i I'd seen you talk about that mean with, uh, with Jason and how you kind of then took it to a case of okay, now I'm looking at getting back into the water and I'm going to ride a small wave then I'm going to look at getting a brace for my foot and you seem to kind of Keep looking for reasons of how you could do it and how you can modify the situation to get back to doing what you love. And I think that's the, the problem a lot of us have with fear is we kind of fall into the water of it. You know, we don't see a way out of it. Whereas I think sometimes we do need to meet Jason and things like that where we need to see that there is ways out of this, that it's it could be worse. There's always a worse situation but there's always something good we can take from a situation you know i mean do you use things like visualization do you write gratitude journals how do you kind of keep that mental kind of strength and character going have you started to modify anything since you've got back into the water i mean apart from just like their training your physical training are you looking at kind of mindset training or anything like that
2: I think for me, the the just it's. I've recently had a baby girl, so that also, and along with that, bad injury is like it's reset the amount of risk that I will take. Like I've, I've had to. I've now that I've got someone who completely relies on me, I won't take as much risk as what I was taking before. So that has completely changed my mindset to risk, and I think that technique of of asking myself the question, would I be doing this, you know, if the career, um, results weren't there and I would just do it because I love doing it is a good question for me to ask myself, to keep the, the risk assessment in, in check and in balance. That's probably the the sort of main one that's come from the injury and then having a, a someone who really relies on you. Um, Aside from that, it's kind of the I, I have like as far as visualization goes, I, I feel like it's so valuable to have clear goals that break down into your daily goals and the things that you need to do every day. That, um, like I built an app ages ago because I've, I've done this my whole life. I think it's the most powerful tool to build resilience. It's like motivation is the most powerful tool against fear, basically. And and I built an app that, so it, what it does is I put in all images that represent my goals across the different aspects of my life, whether it's all my business career goals, all my personal life relationship goals, all my, um, my health-related goals, and I, I put in photos of what they look like, like hundreds of photos that kind of represent them and then i add like a whole list of all my favorite songs that that make me either happy or motivated or or whatever and then the app what it does is it would just come on in my phone at different times in the day and it would just create a slideshow with a my favorite one of my favorite songs and i'd just get this new slideshow it, it, a couple of times a day that just motivated me with the songs and it just like reinforced it every time. And it's, it was one of the best things that I've, I've ever done. Um, it just costs a fortune to, to build the app. And then it costs a fortune to keep updating the app every six months when everyone's phone changes. <laughs> so it's like, and, and now you can just, you can do that with your phone anyway. You can build a slideshow and set alarms that just kind of motivate you. I, I cause, and then the, the one, the one thing, and I, I, try and explain this every time I do talks, but, and it sounds super cliche for, for athletes to say goal settings valuable, but it's like the, 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 the meticulous, like thought out goals. They, they, what they do in your brain is they highlight the fact that you're progressing. Like each time you tick the one off in the morning, that's like, Oh, you got to do that one thing that's important. And if you do that in the morning, like tick it off. It, it, Allows your brain to go like, ah, oh, that 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 feels good. I'm pro- I've done that, which means I'm progressing towards this ideal future. And when you do that, your your brain gets filled with the positive emotions, like the the serotonin, dopamine, all that, that make you resilient. So, like, if you want to take any anxiety meds or the, the doctors give you any of those things, they are basically creating that positive emotion. So. Aside from all like taking the meds, you can do it by just having those goals set out like just small they have it doesn't matter how tiny they are but if they highlight for your brain that you're you're progressing you get the positive emotion anyway so it's like it's like that 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 ability to make it clear to your brain that you're moving in the right direction is what makes you resilient to keep moving in the right direction it's like a feedback loop like that's why and i i I just think that is the most important piece to to being resilient and dealing with fear is just having clear defined goals and 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 being able to see your progression towards them and then if 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 your goals are just completely ridiculous that you can't get any progression towards them then you just got to reassess and reframe the goals and set them to something more attainable you know and then because then you still get that positive emotion that makes you resilient i think that anytime because it's like so all the majority of anxiety is just bred out of uncertainty right like so you put in situations or your life you're uncertain in that moment and everyone's being hit by that right now with the radical change in what's going on with the pandemic so then the anxiety comes out of us in 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 anxiety the uncertainty comes out of us in anxiety right so you force certainty into your life by setting those small goals that you can achieve each day that lead towards the right goal and then that that forced certainty creates the positive emotion so for me when i was injured it's like I can't surf, so I stopped thinking about surfing, changed my entire social media feed, so I don't see anything about surfing. Here's what I can do in my day. Here's all the little things that I should get done in each given day, and if I do those, I know I'm moving in the right direction. And, and, and then you can do it like the simplest things, like crossing on a calendar is enough. Like when you do it, you go like at the end of the day or whatever, or after each goal, you put you just the action of crossing on the calendar will give your brain that positive emotion. Like that I think that's the fundamental part of uh of building resilience and and if I, if resilience is if you're resilient you're happy as well. You're driven, you're motivated. So it's kind of I think that's in some way the secret to life to managing being a human is just progression towards a, a sort of ideal future, you know.
1: Well, so I, I love how deep and analytical, you, you know, you sort of look at things and you can have this humility about, you know, like, I don't think I'm any sort of naturally good and stuff like that. And everybody's kind of, like, wowed at, like, the stuff that you do and the ability you have and the stuff you've achieved. I mean, do you think there is a relationship between fear and challenges with top, you know, top performers and top performance? You know, how can we use it? to kind of keep pushing ourselves. I mean, I think we've kind of just started scratching the surface and we've almost gone into an hour. I mean, what is the relationship, do you think, between that and top performance?
2: The relationship between fear and top performance?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you need fear to be a top performer? Do you have to keep pushing the sort of that comfort zone, that sort of circle around you to kind of to to be a top performer? Do you think that's what oh, takes people time. into it? Mean-
2: I mean, you will that individually you won't access your personal potential, like your full potential, without going through fear. That's I just don't think that's possible, like certain amounts of anxiety, because you can't find out what you're capable of until you push yourself. So, but you could have a phenomenally like high performer who's freakishly genetically talented that doesn't have to push themselves all that much, but then still compared to everyone else in their field, they are a high performer. Um, Sure, lucky for them in a way, but in another way, I think that the fulfillment that you feel is closely aligned with how hard you push through your personal challenge and fear. I think um, like, if it, when you look at high achievers and that you say that they've achieved greatness because they're the best in their sport, but the feeling of greatness, like if you're like, okay, I've just achieved greatness, what does it feel like? I think the feeling of greatness is di- directly related to how hard you had to push to get there. So any person, like to use surfing for an example, Anyone who goes out and surfs a wave twice as big as what they can already surf will feel the same feeling and a sense of accomplishment than than I feel when I go out and surf, you know, a 50-foot wave. So it's just in relationship to you individually. And you just won't – you can't know what you're capable of as far as potential is concerned unless – you're pushing through that fear and anxiety because the fear and anxiety just wants you to keep you doing what you're doing. And the potential is on the other side of that. And then you can just, I think, then I just end up back on that thing. Like find out, get to know yourself, find out where you want to go, make the goals and do those little steps at a time and just build the skill set and just you'll start to learn to love that like the anxiety switches eventually with the, once you build the skill set in the situation the situations that made you anxious then all of a sudden make you excited like there's such a close relationship between the two emotions or physical states that they just it's like a switch happens it's like oh I, i'm i'm really excited about doing this rather than i'm so anxious about this and, and that's like another version of a positive affirmation. It's like when you feel anxious, just reframe it by actually saying, no, I'm not anxious about what I'm doing. I'm really excited about what I'm about to do. That's why I'm in this heightened state.
1: I love that because it's, you know, that thing I was saying, well, I don't, uh, you know, instead of saying I have to train because that's a negative kind of connotation, say I get mm-hmm. to train or I get to ride this wave or I get to, do, you know. You can always sort of flip the positive side and a lot of times your brain doesn't understand the difference between what you're visualizing and reality. You know, I think there was, a I'm not remember the name of the study, but you can kind of almost trick it into, like, proper practice by visualizing rather than the actual physical practice and they were saying that it, how you think about it can kind affect. Of you know if you think about it positively you can actually get a lot of benefits from it but i mean i can't believe we've almost we've gone over an hour and you know i feel like we're just touching subject like i'd love to have you on again because i've got stuff on masculinity physical training recovery um so i've just got a couple of quick questions for you I mean, you, you've got an amazing family there and you've just had a young daughter. What would you say if she came to you later on and said she wanted to get into a you know, big wave surfing? Is this something that you would let her do or is this a kind of a personal journey, do you think? Or would you try to push her towards something else?
2: Uh, to be honest, I hope that she doesn't do that, but uh, I would definitely let her. I th- and and But I would just manage, you know, when she's young, I would try and help her manage... The risk with the preparation and I think she would just have to get to know her ability level and what's what's the variation of risk and I teach her I think the technique that I learned to question where are you doing this solely for for external results and admiration or do you love doing it and I think if you love doing it then that's a that's a better place to to uh, attack it from, as long as they're kind of balanced. But, yeah, I, I really hope she doesn't because I don't want to have to live through watching her do that.
1: <laughs> so I mean, how did it change you, you know, becoming a father? Because, I mean, you've you recently got married, you've you, know, you now got the child, and, you know, it seems that you've kind of – you're in know, that situation, most people will be like – yeah, stop chasing the big waves. But, I mean, has it changed your outlook in it? Or have you become more kind of controlled? You know, does this go back to the thing you said about you would look at it in terms of if I wouldn't get sponsorship for this, would I still want to ride this wave? You know, has fatherhood changed you in any other way, do you think?
2: It definitely has changed me. And, And all the parents out there know it's like you've never, ever felt a love like you feel when you have a child like it's completely can shift the way you exist in the world because now you're not the most important person in your existence like your child's the most important person and you're important in regards to you have to look after yourself so you can look after them and yeah so it made a massive forced a massive shift in my risk assessment of what sort of risk I will take now it'll be tough because when I'm out in the water in big waves like I've built into my psychology of how I approach those big waves which you know is taking a lot of risk and that I have to hold that back because it kind of naturally forces me down that route so I have to constantly you know question myself and rein myself in to to take less risk just because you know, I have to be there to support my my child. And then the other thing that, that has made a big difference as well is that I can make a living from public speaking as well. So it's there's less some of the motivation of my my livelihood depending on surfing big waves. That's gone. Like I have a backup plan, which is always nice. I think everyone in every field of expertise should always have some sort of backup plan so that you're kind of not it's, a, it's almost like you're not then held as a slave to that one career or one job and which makes negotiating way better um so now that i've got a backup plan that that's changed my risk profile a little bit as well but um i i, I feel like i'll i'll surf big waves till i'm i don't know i'm hoping 60 70 it's just the the definition of big changes a little bit it'll still be big compared to everyone else but to me, it would be a whole lot safer than what I, I did when I was between
1: 20 and 30 years old. I love because you're showcasing people what is possible. You know, they can use fear as a positive to kind of to really excel and push themselves out of their comfort zone and do stuff they never thought possible. Because a lot of times we're not taught the tools. We're just taught to be, oh, God, that's scary. Stop it. And you're showing like in an amazing way, riding these monster waves. That we can do these things. We can do things that terrify us. We just need to learn the skills to to understand it, to you know, to practice it. To. To, you know, to, to even know how to deal with it and how to come out of it well and how to have backup plans and stuff like that. So you're doing amazing stuff. You're changing lives with your talks you know. and, and also skating people about <laughs> like going into the water possibly as well. But, I mean, we haven't even touched on, like, some of the amazing stuff that I really wanted to get into about, like, you know, uh, motivation, really getting into your recovery, what your partner had said when you said you're going back to the water, top performers. You know, we've got plenty for round two, so I'd love to have you back on. But for those listening, you know, this is a, the second last question. But what do you want people to take from this? What would you like if there's only one thing to remember? What would you want them to remember from fear, you know, your outlook on fear, big wave riding? top performance all that kind of stuff
2: i think if there's one thing it would be that get to know yourself like just have that self reflection and and get to know who you are and how you're built and and what your capabilities are as best as you can and then Set the ideal future for yourself. What do, you, what do you want life to look like at 60 years old or 70 years old across your business career, your personal life and your relationships and your health? Like what do you want? What's the ideal future? And then work backwards from there to what you need to do every day to make those things a reality. Of course, you're going to pivot when when things change and you're going to create different versions of the reality. But as long as you start by getting yourself on in moving in the right direction then that's the best start and then i mean you're going to inevitably have failures along the way i think when you do fail a great way to set yourself to the right point to get out of that fail failure is to reframe your perspective to one of gratitude so look at how much worse life could be and then feel that emotion of gratitude and use the energy from that emotion to reset your plan and take the action you need to overcome the failure. I think that that's like the, the basis of all the things. And then all the other, like we could go, another podcast would be awesome to do. We can go into all the, more of the techniques and, and different mind hacks and all of these different things that you can do. But that basis that I just explained then, I think that is the most important thing. And none of the tips and techniques make up for not having that in place in your life
1: because that's the thing that kind of bags me sometimes it's like you know you only get like one chance sometimes to speak to people and there's so much you want to go into and particular things and you could go on for hours and just as i was finding out more and more about you it's like oh i want to go into that and i want to discuss this and i was thinking well that's about 10 hours already of questions so (laughs) we gotta do it again but i mean
2: we could we could do an hour podcast just on diet like or you could do a podcast just on leadership and teamwork or just on relationships and building networks or you know i mean there's so much to cover but i think that i just for people if you once your plan set of where you want to go then all the information it'll it'll force you to find all that information you know like once your plan's set and you're in motion then everything's online that you need to do you just google it <laughs> You know,
1: because you tend to sometimes get so into somebody when you're researching them that you almost know their stories so well that you have to avoid getting really specific sometimes you know you have to throw in some sort of general questions as well so people kind of know what you're talking about as well and it's it's really hard because you you have such a fascinating story and outlook and stuff and you know we'll have everything on the show notes and we'll drive people to your stuff but for people who want to find out more about you come and watch you surf you know do you do like surf coaching how do we get in touch with you on social media? Have you got any events coming up? Um I don't know how the pandemic lockdown's affecting you at the moment?
2: At the moment, I think the best people if, if they want to follow stuff that I do in the surf on um uh Instagram is kind of where I post the most surf footage. Uh that's Mark Mark Matthews Surf. So and it's Matthews with one T. And then um Business-wise and where I talk more about the, the sort of psychology of dealing with fear and overcoming it is uh, just find me on LinkedIn and, and connect and then I can let you know if I'm going to do a, a sort of live broadcast or a Q&A in the future, I can, um, I'll can i just send out to all my connections, like jump online, I'm going to do this a virtual talk and um and then we can have a chat that way i think's the best that's the new reality that i live in without face-to-face conferences coming back anytime soon I, uh, everything's online I, i'm telling stories to cameras
1: <laughs> it's an interesting existence I mean, how do you find that transition from you know, like, because you you org- you organise like some of these big surfing events, and you know you're then competing, and then you become a father, and you're a businessman, and you're giving the talk, and that. How do you find that transition, to sort of bounce around these different roles? As it you know, I mean, do you have you improve skills like timekeeping, management, stuff like that, or? Are you still just like this? Is part of the fear? It's just learning the ropes and immersing yourself and kind of finding your way around.
2: Yeah, it's definitely just it's a new environment, new skill set. The fear is there, but I know from past experience I can overcome fear with the skills. So I've just got to build the skills. The for me, the detailed time management, everything like that is is tough and i I've I'm lucky enough to be able to have an awesome assistant who helps me out with all the meticulous planning and processing and all that type of stuff and um, yeah where you, where possible if you can outsource to the things that you're not great at and that's what you'll realize when you get to know yourself and you do the personality profile and all that sort of stuff You, if, you, if there's a possibility of outsourcing to someone who's way better at that part of it than
0: you then that's a, a good option Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life.